0: Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. Christ, the wisdom and power of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, brothers, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, proclaiming Christ crucified. so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Okay, so we are continuing in our series in uh, 1 Corinthians, and um, this imperfect church, um, and um, uh, we said last week Paul is writing this letter in response to a letter that they had written to him, and in response to some of uh, reports he had heard, he had planted this church, he's now... Um, um, in, in, in Ephesus, and uh, he's writing back to them to, to, to clear up some things. And if you remember last week, we looked at these divisions that were in the church. Um, there were different factions, divisions. They were aligning themselves with different kind of leaders uh, as, as they kind of saw uh, wanting to identify with certain leaders so that they could kind of have self-value, self-worth in that, and, or different causes, different ideas, things like that. And we ended last week with verse 17. For Christ did not, so he's, he says, you know, I thank God that I didn't baptize a lot of you, um, all of these sorts of things. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, because that was the, th- these are the Greeks, eloquent wisdom, oratory, um, philosophy um, is what is seen to be noble and aspired to. These are the influencers of their day um, within that. And he says, I, I didn't come preaching the gospel that way, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then we get to the section that we're at today. And and so he's wanting to focus their and our uh, attention away from man, away from ourselves, away from this kind of worldly wisdom, um, uh, 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 our attempts to kind of find self-validation and to get our eyes fixed on solely where they should be on Jesus and his gospel because it is Christ. Who say who who uh, secures our salvation, and not man? Right? Do you remember last time he's like, "Is Paul has Paul been crucified for you? Um, is it, uh, it, it man? Apollos hasn't done this for you. It is Christ who's done these things." And so here we have Christ Himself, the wisdom and power of God. And so Paul is saying here, he says, "When the word of the cross, when the gospel is preached, it reveals something to you." It's going to reveal something to, to all of us here today, and it's going to reveal two things. It, it, uh, what does the text say? For the, power, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so when the gospel is preached, it reveals either if you are perishing or if you are being saved. And there's two responses within that, right? The perishing think that the, this word of the cross, this gospel message is foolishness. Uh, It's the word, the Greek word here is the word that we get moronic from. This is moronic. This is is ridiculous. And those who are hearing and receiving the message and being saved by it, their response is, this is the power of God being unleashed in their life. And so we have to ask the question this morning, well, why? Why are some perishing? And why are some being saved? Why Why are some people's response to this? One of this is, this is ridiculous, this is foolishness, this, is, this can be discarded and ignored, and why are for some people, this is completely life-altering, completely paradigm-shifting. And so today's, today's sermon is a difficult one, um, not, not difficult to understand, but certainly difficult to accept, because it's going to push back on, on all kinds of certain things in the human heart. And so my prayer this morning is that um, although there are things that are difficult to hear, that there might even be things that, that kind of we want to resist, that we would um, just continue to p- pay close attention um, to the end. And my, my hope is that as we hear the word of the cross this morning, that we would hear it as power, the power and wisdom of God himself. So why? Why are some perishing and some being saved? And this is where we see in verses 23 and 24, it can get um, difficult. He says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly or foolishness to Gentiles. And here's our answer. Why are some rejecting it and some receiving it? The answer is in verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. When we come into contact with the gospel, how we respond to that is determined by if if God is calling us. Um, i, I didn 't grow up really with, with this understanding um, in the states or the church that I kind of grew up in. Um, there was a good church, loved Jesus, sent lots of people out on mission. But the doctrine of election wasn 't really a part of uh, of the way that we understood uh, things and uh, teaching there and It was really once I started uh, reading the Bible deeper for myself, um, my late teens nineteen, kind of in my my 20s, um, went to seminary. The seminary I went to didn 't really teach doctrine of election either. Um, and, and kind of left that and, 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 um, and, and found uh, a seminary that would help me understand this a little bit more because it, it, you can't escape it. It's literally all over the scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles. We have this doctrine of election, of God calling people to himself, of God choosing to save And so when we come into contact with things in the scripture that we don't like or that we don't, um, because it's it is difficult, right? The whole time we've, we growing up, um, we hear about God. God is kind. He's loving. He's merciful. He wouldn't want anyone to perish, that we should go out with that good news, that we should share the good news with people. All of that is true. But in our mind then it's hard to reconcile. Well then why, why is, why is God choosing some? And the important thing for us to remember is when we come into contact with things like this in Scripture that we don't like or that our, our, our human nature wants to kind of uh, repel from, we can't worship a God of our own making. We can't worship a God based on our feelings or, or, or the way that we feel that he should behave. Imagine that. Imagine having a God that never disagreed with you. If you have a God that never disagrees with you, that's that's an idol. That's a a God that you've made. Imagine all the billions of people that have existed on the earth and God never disagreeing with any of them. (laughs) The reason we are creatures and he is creator is because his ways are above our understanding at times. And so when we come into things... We should explore them. We should seek to understand them. But we worship a God for who he says he is, for how he has revealed himself to be, even if it rubs us the wrong way. And so in verse 23, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, and then we see three groups and that he mentions. Stumbling block to the Jews, Folly to the Gentiles. Gentiles, that's everybody else besides the Jews. That's us. That's you and me. And then those that are called. And so let's look at these three groups. First, the Jews. Because here's, here's what I want us to see. I think if, we're, uh, if you're a Christian today, you'll probably see yourself in all of these groups. Um, at some point, your, your, your journey into um, belief in Jesus is going to be seen in all of these groups. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You're exploring this kind of faith. Um, I hope that this will... Um, will be a part of the way you hear the call of God and respond to him. And so here we have the Jews. Now, remember that this is, uh, Jesus was a Jew. Um, the people, uh, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, are the people that God set apart that he was going to reveal himself to and through. These were the people that were called. He had promised, uh, all, promised a Messiah uh, that would come to them through the, from Abraham all the way through. And so they were looking for these signs. They, wanted, they demanded these signs of who the Messiah was going to be. And make no mistake, the cross was a sign of who the Messiah was, but they missed it. They missed it completely. They wanted God on their terms. God had to meet their demands and their expectations first. Now, they might not have framed it that way, but that's exactly what was happening. And we begin to see what, can in, what impeded their view and what can impede our view of the cross as well. They had heard of the one to come, this Messiah, for generations. But over time, they had developed their own expectations of of what the Messiah would be like, of who he would be, and these demands. And now to hear of this is the Messiah, Jesus crucified on a cross, no doubt their mind would have went back to to the Torah, Deuteronomy 21, which actually says that a man that's hanged on a tree is cursed by God. So our Messiah isn't going to be the guy who comes and is crucified by Rome. The Messiah is going to come and establish his kingdom now. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to liberate us finally. He's going to establish his kingdom and rule in power. And that's true, just not the way and in the time frame that they expected. How can this be the Messiah? You're preaching Christ which literally means Messiah, the promised one, crucified? That's the dumbest thing we've ever heard. It's not what they expected. It was crazy talk to them. That's not what they expected and not what they demanded. And Paul is addressing the church here because they had picked up this way of thinking along the way as well, a way of following Jesus. And maybe we have too. We want Jesus, we want God, but we want God on our terms. We want him to act and behave the way that we want him to act and behave. That fits into our way of seeing the world. Fits into our narrative. Right? We demand signs from God as well. God, I'll follow you if. Or we start to follow God until we butt up against something that we're like, whoa, whoa, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure that the demands that God has on my personal life, on my sexual life, on, on, on me being holy, that's not the kind of God that, that, that I'm, I'm interested in following. And so we either shape and mold God to kind of fit our terms, or we just kind of reject it and walk away. And the, for those of you that are Gen X and remember the 80s, there's a band called Depeche, Depeche Mode, and they had this song called Personal Jesus and that's us that's what we, we just want our personal jesus and the jews had heard about a messiah for a long time developed these expectations and demands and jesus steps on the scene and all of their expectations begin to rise hosanna hosanna he's operating in power he's doing miracles this is our guy this is it this is the one we've been waiting for and then he gets crucified and they're like, well, wasn't him. To the Greeks, then, second group of people, the Gentiles, that's everybody else. It's foolishness. This is folly. The Greeks um, at this time preferred to use reasoning and judgment to attain knowledge of God. It's where a lot of our our modern thinking has come from, philosophy, and not not all of that is bad. All truth is God's truth, right? And so, but but this is, you know, this is the home of Socrates and Plato, and I mean this is predates even those guys, but but this is this is where the, the seat of of earthly wisdom is at this time. And the Greeks preferred following these people. This is part of what Paul's trying to address, right? I'm following this person, I'm following this person. And in our culture, it's the same those who have power and influence. Um, these days tend not to probably be philosophers and orders. Maybe they're actors or athletes or whatever it is. But in their, di- in their time in Corinth, these public orators were the ones who had power and influence. These were the people who'd receive adulation and acclaim. The kind of things that we lavish upon our kind of uh, celebrities today, these, these were those people then. And so, therefore, if you wanted to be somebody, you would seek wisdom. You would seek to be able to have a, a school of thought or you would li- align yourself with uh, these philosophers, these people that were these sages, these, these people that were wisdom of the day. And so here then, logically, no sane person is looking to ab- embrace a gospel that is going uh, to, to have Jesus who ends up being crucified on a cross, mur- you know, killed by the government, a criminal's death. And then we're meant to follow him. We're meant to take up our cross. There are parts of our life that might have to be killed off as well. See, we think of wisdom as supposed to actually help us. Wisdom is something that makes my life better. It makes my life more comfortable. It puts me in in positions of ease. And following Jesus, there's no guarantees of any of that. (laughs) It's usually the opposite. And so it seems like foolishness. This isn't, wisdom isn't supposed to, to make my life more difficult. Wisdom isn't supposed to make me get rejected by my family or my friends. Wisdom isn't supposed to um, cost me things financially. It's supposed to help me gain financially. And some within the church in Corinth, they're starting to see this gospel, um, maybe even as a new wisdom, perhaps a new teaching, and if we'll take it, we can modify it to the outside world. Maybe we can kind of gain influence. That still happens today. Lots of charlatans peddling some kind of version of the gospel for their own kind of influence. So they want this wisdom, but they want a wisdom that's going to match the world. And that's just not the gospel. So Greeks are receiving the gospel, and they're hearing it. Hearing Paul say this, the, the word of the cross of, of Christ being crucified—that's. They're like, "This is the foolish. This is foolish. Why would you follow that?" So you have this barrier of even humiliation. How many of us have refused to trust in the cross of Jesus because of the worldly disadvantages that it might bring to us? If I follow Christ, it might actually harm my relationships, maybe with, with family, with friends the boss. I'll lose influence and power and culture. Following Jesus brings about some sort of humiliation in our life. It doesn't bring us status and power in the world that we think that, that, that we all kind of long for. It does the opposite, doesn't it? And so Paul brings both their attention, the Jews and the Greeks, back to the cross, knowing that it's going to be a tough pill to swallow. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, Folly to Gentiles. A stumbling block for the Jews with their false expectations and demands. Folly to the Gentiles and us. Afraid to be humbled and humiliated. But then there's the third group. The called. But to those who are called. And what's interesting, it's both Jews and Greeks. So there are some Jews who hear the message of the gospel There are some Greeks who hear the message of the gospel and it's not folly, it's not a stumbling block. It's the power of God in their life. This word power they use is is the same word that we use for dynamite. It's just like, it's an explosion of power in their life. When the called, when those of us who hear the call of God in our life, there's something that dramatically happens. There's a shift that happens. We don't dismiss it. We don't hear it as foolishness. It is the power and wisdom of God himself. For those who are called, those who believe, those who come to God on his terms, through the cross, it's the power and wisdom of God. What's he saying in verse 25? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now God isn't foolish and he isn't weak, but he's using this, this kind of language that even God's, even, even God's foolishness is way, way wiser than, than any kind of earthly wisdom. Even, even the weakness of God is way more powerful than our strength. And where is God's weakness and his foolishness best demonstrated from a worldly perspective the cross this is the son of god this is your plan this is how you're going to redeem the world you're going to come live in obscurity until you're 30 have three years of ministry and then get murdered by the romans on a cross and get buried that's your plan It's weakness. It's foolishness. It's not a powerful. It's not a conquering. Now, that comes. Make no mistake, right? Th- that day comes where Jesus comes in, 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 all, in all of the power we expect him to come in. But when he comes with that power, it's a power of judgment. <laughs> At that point, it's too late. And so he comes now in what seems to us as weakness. What does he say to them in verse 26? He says, For consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. You didn't have anything of yourself. Paul says, look around. Look at yourself. And we have to understand that culture in many ways was similar to us. He's like, you had nothing in and of yourself. And this is a culture, again, uh, of achievement. Corinth, like our Western kind of capitalistic society, was built on a meritocracy. It's what you did, not who you were. Power and status and position were not something inherited, but something you had to achieve. They weren't noble by birth. They didn't inherit, inherently possess power. Wisdom and knowledge were a means of achieving power and influence, even if you didn't come from a noble family. So even uh, if you think of Corinth, they had a lot of sport, like think gladiator, you know, kind of sports. Those games were more than just games. They were this separation, this picture of separation of power within people. You had the noble, and then you had common folk. You had the poor, peasants. And many of the poor were bought by the nobles and then placed in these gladiatorial games. But if you were good enough, if you could survive... If you could actually become this star athlete, you could achieve status and power. You could become like the nobles, much like our athletes today, right? You're, you know, football players, they come from a real poor neighborhood, whatever, but now they're like multi, you know, wealthy beyond their imagination. Not because they were from any nobility or they went to Cambridge or Oxford or had political power, but because they were able to achieve that through their athletic prowess. It's the same kind of things that were happening then. And Paul reminds them, Greeks and Jews both, you have little of no status. That's not where you were coming from. Your achievement, although it might look good on paper, and it might, but most likely doesn't, didn't help with their social status, it doesn't earn you any of those things, doesn't earn you anything before God. Whatever our achievements in life are, as, as, as impressive as they are to each other on a human level, don't count for anything at the cross. The cross levels us all. We are all come to the cross the same. And if we don't keep these things in their proper place, they can begin to warp our view of the cross. Why is that? Well, he says in verse 26, Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were powerful. We have this obsession with power, don't we? We think that somebody's, if you're important, you have influence. You have some kind of power over people, right? So that's actually a thing now. Like, that's a career you can have, being an influencer. What do you do for a living? I just influence other people. Okay, how does that work? Like, where do you go to school for that? Like, the school of Instagram and YouTube, and Right? Um, like people get paid to influence you to spend your money in a certain kind of way. So we, we, we attribute influence with power. And he says, listen, this is not what the cross is. In Greek culture, wisdom was power. Status was power. Who you knew was power. In Greek culture, just like today, their heroes were strong, powerful. Conquering, arrogant, prideful. Just look at our leaders, the people that we choose to be our leaders, the people we elect. And then here comes Jesus, this guy with a ragged bunch of less than desirables, fishermen, tax collectors, people on the margins, not people with influence, not people with any kind of power, not people with any kind of nobility. They're the ones following him. And then he's captured, stripped naked, hung on a cross to die. Now, where's the power and the glory in that from a human perspective? Imagine, that's the message. This is the message of the gospel. You could understand. I mean, we understand why even people today would be like, that's crazy. Why why would I follow someone like that? Verse 27 and 28, but God chose what is foolish in the world, so what seems foolish to us, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, to shame the so-called strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, to bring to nothing things that are. God is more interested in the weak than in the strong. We'll get to the reason for that in a second. He's more interested in looking to those who recognize their weakness than those who seek to prop themselves up in their own power. To look at the cross from a purely human perspective where power and wisdom and achievement is prized, God looks really weak in that moment. There's no power in losing on a cross. There's no power in in being crucified. It's the ultimate display of weakness and vulnerability and frailty. And it was shameful. So there's certain things that we don't really talk about, right, in culture. Um, It used to be sex. Now that's all we talk about. But maybe it's politics or maybe it's religion or whatever it is. But, like, back then, like, you just didn't talk about, like, crucifixions and stuff like that. Like, we we don't, we struggle to understand that because, like, we put crosses around our neck and on tattoos and, like, all those sorts of things. But, I mean, this was, like, a shameful way to die. So much so that if you're a Roman citizen, you couldn't be executed by crucifixion. That's how shameful it was. They wouldn't, even exe- they wouldn't execute their own, their own citizens this way. But we know, those of us that have believed, that the cross, the gospel, reveals whether you're perishing or being saved. This is what Paul is telling us. The cross, the gospel, reveals whether you're perishing or Rejecting Christ, and that perishing just doesn't mean like dying physically, but like eternally separated from God, hell, or being saved. What determines what will be revealed when the cross of Christ is is preached is whether or not you're called. Let me say it again. The gospel reveals whether you're perishing or being saved. What determines what will be revealed, whether you're perishing or being saved, when the cross of Christ is preached, is whether or not you're being called by God. And this is important for us to understand because being called, there's a difference between when a person calls you, like if I call you and say, hey, do you want to go out for dinner? You can say yes or no to that, right? Why would you say no though, really? Come on. But you might. You might say no. But when God calls The calling of God always produces what it requests. So theologians use a term called the effectual calling of God. It produces an effect every time he calls. When God calls, it always produces what it requests. When God calls, it happens. This is how the this is how this book actually starts. Do you remember? It starts with nothing, a void. There's nothing, there's nothing there except God Himself. And what does he do? He calls into the void. And what does he say? Let there be light. And the light was like, eh, I'm kind of busy right now. No, and there was. There there was light. He calls forth, and it happens. And Paul wants them to see, this is how you're saved. It wasn't the eloquence of Apollos. It wasn't me baptizing you. It wasn't uh, Peter wasn't any of these things. God has called you from death to life. He's spoken to your life and said, let there be light. And there was. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we, there's no, I mean, literally we would have to look at the entire arc of, of the Bible to, to do this, but let's look at a few more places just, just to help us drill down a little bit more. And then I'll, I'll come back uh, around to some of the reasoning um, behind this, so look at Romans eight um, verses. The entire book of Romans is just a, a treasure trove of unpacking this. But let's just see it explicitly in Romans eight. You'll, if you've been a, a, a Christian for a while, you've no doubt heard verse twenty eight. We normally kind of take it out of context to just let people know, hey, everything will be fine, um, even when it might not be fine. But verse twenty eight, Romans eight twenty eight, and we know. For those who love God, those that belong to Jesus, all things work together for good. Now, that might not be the way that you and I expect it to turn out, but it is good from God's perspective. For those who are, what's the word? Called. Those who are called according to his purpose. For, so verse 29 starts with for, what we just read. Because of what we just read, For those whom he, that's God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. I mean, this is it. This is this unbreakable chain of your salvation if you're a Christian today. God foreknew you Before the foundation of the earth, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. How he did that was calling you, and those who he called, he justified. That's your salvation. He's made you right before God. The calling is the catalyst of that. It's the catalyst of of that. You love God because he loved you first. He called you to himself. So if you're a Christian today, it's because God called into the darkness of your heart and brought forth light Brought forth life out of death. Let there be faith. And you had faith. John chapter 1. Um, turn there. John 1, verse 12. And this will be a familiar verse again. But to all who did receive him, that's, that's you and me if you're a Christian today, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become Children of God. Now, that sounds kind of straightforward, okay? We believed, and because we believed, then he gave us the right. But keep going in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. That's not because of your will that these things happened. In those last three verses, but of God. God you're born again into the family of God, not because of flesh and blood, not because of your will, but because God. Do you remember when uh, in in Matthew 16, verse 16, Jesus asked his disciples, well, who do people people say I am? Well, some people say you're Moses, some people think you're Elijah, you know, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And how does Jesus answer him? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This hasn't come from any human, including your own flesh and blood, including you. This hasn't come to you. This hasn't revealed to you that way. But how? But by my Father who is in heaven. He's like, you're right. That's exactly who I am. And it's the Father in heaven who's revealed that to you. But I thought we were saved by, by faith, by grace. And that's true. Ephesians 2. Well, you have to keep reading because it explains these things. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So it's, all, it's through our faith that we believe in Christ and the grace that he has given us. But where does that faith come from? And this is not of your doing, your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, things that you and I have done. Why? So that no one may boast. No human being may boast. No, look at, go back to 1 Corinthians 1. Look at verse 29. Or 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world. So that's, again, God calling, Him choosing. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's because of him. Verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This empties, not the power of the cross, but the power of us to do anything to save ourselves. This is what Paul is driving their attention to. It's not because you chose the teaching of Apollos. It's not because you aligned with this, this person or that person. Not because you were baptized by. It's because of the power of the cross. There's nothing that we could do to try to make ourselves presentable to God so that he would save us anything to make him love us. Those of you who are parents know this, right? I remember all three, the birth of my kids um, and all of them. Um, And you remember uh, those moments very vividly. Here comes this stranger who I've never met before, who's done absolutely nothing to earn my affection or benefit me in any way. And yet I have this indescribable love for them. A love that, in a way that I don't have for anybody else. It's incredible love that you have for them. Why? They're a stranger. (laughs) They've not done anything. It's because, because they're mine. We begin to understand the love of God for his own. We didn't do anything to earn that. We didn't bring any kind of benefits to bear on that. He has set his affections on us because of who he is, and because he has called us to himself. Why? It's not because, so that we wouldn't boast, it's not because God's like some kind of like a megalomaniac in heaven, hey, you can't take any credit, all the credit has to come to me, it's just because that's the reality of how it actually is. It's just us being honest with, with the reality of it is that God gets all of those, all of the glory in that because there was nothing in and of ourselves that made us lovely. Listen to how he goes on to explain it in verse in chapter two, then we go on. Because he's trying to clarify this. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, he's like, he's trying to re- remember when I came to you, remember when we established this church, remember when the church was planted. When I came. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I I, I didn't come the way that, that these Greek orators come. I didn't come with this lofty philosophy. I didn't come in worldly terms. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came with the message of the gospel. And I was with you in verse three, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's what you said this morning. I, mean, I didn't know what to do. I was kind of afraid, didn't, but I'm just going to trust the Lord, trust the gospel. He says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, not in the way that we think of wisdom in earthly terms, but how? But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Why? Because the wisdom of men constantly is changing, constantly is failing. Things that we were dead set sure on just a few generations ago, we're like, oh, actually that's not true anymore. Science has moved on. It's revealed some things that we didn't know before. The wisdom of a man. If, that, if you're placing all of your hope on the wisdom of a man, good luck with that. Like it's shifting sand. Our faith rests on the power of God. Though looks like weakness is actually power. Though looks like the end. Though looks like death is actually resurrection. Though looks like lowliness is actually being raised to sit at the right hand of the Father. Christ crucified, this weakness, this fear, this trembling, not wisdom in an earthly kind of way, but a demonstration of the power of the Spirit so that your, fa- your faith wouldn't rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And that's because Christ has called you unto himself. Now we have these kind of then objections to this, right? Well, is that fair? And the answer is No. It's not fair. What's fair is all of us, (laughs) all of us (laughs) spend an eternity apart from Christ. That's what's fair. That's what's just, is that God saves no one. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, in a way to reveal himself to us and his character and his nature, calls we're told in the scripture that it's his desire that none would perish say well does that then absolve us of our uh uh, responsibility then why would i share the message of of jesus with people i thought we were on mission and those sorts of things well if god's just going to save whoever he wants to then why why would we bother doing that but but it's actually the opposite why would you bother sharing this message of foolishness and weakness if it all relied on you to convince people? Like that's a pretty arrogant place to be. This is exactly what Pauls fighting against. It's not it's not convincing arguments, it's not worldly kind of ways of thinking. That's not how he came with the gospel. It's the power of God's calling, the power of the spirit. Uh, I'm getting ready to go to Moldova um, with, with Mark, and we're going to spend five days literally just going to, uh, some, some Christians have already made contact with them, they've already heard a, an introductory kind of explanation of the gospel, they've asked some people to come and follow up with them. We're just going to spend five days just visiting four to six people in their home, sharing the gospel, and hopefully um, God is calling people to himself. Now why would I do that? Why would I go to the poorest country in Europe, spend a week in the poorest part of the poorest country in Europe, this isn't a luxury holiday or anything like that, going to meet strangers who don't speak the same language as me through an interpreter, being away from my family. And Why would I do that if I didn't think that God was calling people? I'm going trusting that God is calling. I'm not good enough to go speak to people through an interpreter. We have to understand who God is. I'll end with this. Do you remember the story of Job? Job is a a righteous man. He's a wealthy man, has lots of kids, lots of money. He's in good health. And Satan comes to God and says the only reason he's righteous is because his life is of ease. Look at his life. Like he's wealthy, he's blessed, he's got good health. Of course he's going to be righteous. Of course he, he accredits to you. What would happen if we took it all away? And God allows Satan to absolutely level Job's life. He loses all of his kids in in an accident at the same time. Ten kids, gone, wiped out the same day. All of his wealth gone, stolen from him. His health deteriorates so badly that his own wife is like, why don't you just curse God and die? Now, that seems like a pretty justifiable person to have a beef with God. And so Job starts pressing and asking God all these questions, asking God to justify what's happened in his life. And God allows him to do that, allows him to go on and on. And when he's done, think God has a few questions of his own. This is Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. That's not starting off on a good note. (laughs) When there's a whirlwind that showed up in the answer, right? And God asked him, Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? Dressed for action like a man, I will question you and you make it known to me. God says to Job, Okay, you think you know better? Let me ask you a few questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? That's a good question. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together um, and all the sons of glory shouted for joy? Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made clouds, its garments... And thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, "Thus far you can come, and no further." Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? Have you entered into the springs of the sea, and walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates uh, of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. And for another three chapters, he's he's asking Job questions. Questions that no human being would, would know. Because we're not God. And Job's response is the right response at the end of this. And Job answered the Lord, this is chapter 42, and said, I know that you can do all things And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is our response. We want to question God, we want God to operate on our terms. We see the cross as foolishness because of our false expectations and demands, because it demands humility, because it doesn't fit into our paradigm of, of achievement and power, and ultimately because of our pride. We want to boast in ourselves. In Proverbs, God lists seven things that he hates, and you know what tops the list? Pride. That I can do this apart from God. And this is how we got in this position in the first place. God creates humanity in this perfect dwelling place in the Garden of Eden, naked and unashamed, everything they needed, all their needs met, walking personally with the Lord. And Satan comes along and he appeals to their pride. God is holding that on you. You're second class. You can be just like him. You could be equal with him. That fruit that he told you not to eat, that's how you become like him. And our pride swells up and we want to be like God. We want to tell God how to, how, to do, how to run the show. And instead, the message of the cross comes with God himself humbling himself, taking on the form of man, going to the cross, dying the death that you and I deserve to die being buried, but in power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is the same spirit, the same power that is on offer to us today, as God calls to us to lay aside human, human power, human wisdom, all of these sorts of things. That, that doesn't mean that we don't think. This it is an anti-science. It's not, don't, don't mishear this. It's how we enter into reconciliation with God is through weakness. It's not through our pride and arrogance. Why are you a Christian if you are this morning? I don't think it works like this, but let's just say God when, when when you die asks you the question, why should I let you into my kingdom? And if the answer starts with because I we've missed it. Well, it will be because I walked down the aisle once, because I said this prayer once, because I, I did all this stuff for you, Jesus, because I we've missed it. Paul is saying it's not because of us. The answer to why are you a Christian? Why should I let you into my kingdom? Is because God. Let no one boast in the presence of God. It's his calling on our life that we have humbled ourselves to. The power of God has revealed himself to us. Our need for him. Our need for for redemption because of the wickedness that lays in our own heart. It's so easy to look, at, to, to look at other people and see evil in the world, isn't it? Well, never really looking at ourselves and seeing how it lays within. The power of God reveals that to us, our understanding of that, our understanding of the holiness of God, and yet how he has made a way through the death and resurrection of Jesus to be reconciled to him, to have all of that wickedness forgiven and to enter into a life of, of holiness, but a life that leads to human flourishing and joy. But it takes humility. It takes us admitting, responding to this call. If you're a Christian today, I hope this is an encouragement to you because this is how we continue on. It's not in our own power that we get better. It's not in our own power that we continue to please the Lord. It's through this power of the Spirit enabling us, producing this fruit in our life. And if you're not a Christian this morning, which of those categories do you fit into? Hearing this message, you're like, this is crazy. This is foolish. This is ridiculous. And be counted among the perishing. Or is there something in this that is ignited in your heart that God is calling and wooing you to himself. And this might be the day that you actually respond to that call to become one of his own. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that your spirit would do what only you can do in this moment. This is good news and yet we just uh, admit that oftentimes it uh, with our, our human understanding, our human ears, our understanding of power, of achievement, of earning, of meritocracy, of, of what makes us matter, of what makes us important, um, this can just sound like foolishness, like just a stumbling block. This isn't going to help us achieve and get to, to where we want to go in our life. This might actually cost us something we just reject it outright. And so, Father, I pray that your Spirit would help us uh, hear just the good news that this is, that there is nothing that we can do, there is nothing that we are able to do, but it's all of what Jesus has already done, that we just accept that, that we we, uh, believe that. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was died and he rose again for us, In our place. Why would we not respond to that? And receive not just life everlasting with you, but life abundantly now. A life of true joy. A life of true happiness. Not in worldly kind of terms. In terms that might actually look silly to the world, but because you've created us and called us. Where we find true purpose and true meaning and true joy. And so may we respond uh, accordingly this morning, Father. Your, this message is how you call people. And so even this morning, your call is going out. If there's something in our hearts that wants to respond to that positively. That is you calling us. Would we say yes this morning? by the power of your Spirit.